That work. I'm going to start with that simplest of questions. And the one that's really difficult to answer sometimes. What are you living for? What are you living for? As I prepared this sermon, I remembered, uh, because I'd forgotten about it, a line of questioning I used to ask when I was a teenager. I, was, uh, I led Bible studies on the Christian teenage camps. Um, and as a young, passionate, rather blunt Christian, I would uh, ask this line of questioning. What do you spend most of your hours doing? And the answer would generally be, well, like your waking hours. What would you spend most of your waking hours doing? The answer would generally be school or study, especially these Chinese kids who do a lot of that. Or in, just in school. And what are you studying for? So I can get good exam results. And what do you need good exam results for? So I can go to a good university. And what do you need a good university for? So that I can get a good job. What are you going to do with a good job? Well, I'm going to earn money. Why do you need to earn money? So that I can live a comfortable life. And what do you do then? Well, I'm going to retire. And what then? And you see where this line of questioning is going. At the end of the day, there has to be an end to those questions. And it comes down to this question, what are you living your life for? And regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, it's something that we all ask ourselves at one point. Why are we working so hard? What are we doing with our life and what are we living for? It's certainly a uh, question that as we come closer to the end of our life, we ask ourselves that question. What has it all been for? And when you hold up the life purposes of most people, bring it into the light, many probably seem quite shallow. Some would be meaningless and some would probably be quite selfish. I want to be remembered. Well, why? You won't be here. I want to make this world a better place. Now, that sounds very noble. But why? You won't be there anymore. I want to do this for the, my children. It does seem noble, doesn't it? But why? As I said, I could be pretty blunt when I was a teenager. Um, and I haven't used that questioning, uh, line of questioning in a long time, but Christianity is very clear about our answer to this, or it should be. But it's something that we need to ask ourselves, continue to ask ourselves, and that's the question that we're confronted with in the passage today. So if you've got your Bibles, could you turn to Mark chapter 8? Mark chapter 8 starting from verse 22. If you're using your mobile devices, we are going to be reading from the ESV version, English Standard Version. So Mark chapter 8, and when you've got there, just look up and give me a smile. 
so that I know that you're there. Otherwise, I'm not going to start reading when you're still looking. Okay. Mark chapter 8, starting from verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had, uh, had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they, said, uh, they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling to the, uh, the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, were, uh, gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be shamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let me pray as we go on. Father, we know that you have promised that where two or more gather in your name, you will be there. And Lord, we Thank you for that promise and that you are here listening to our prayers, that you are here teaching us, that your spirit is in our hearts, opening our hearts and minds to what you have to teach us today. Lord, I pray that you speak through me, through your word, that the glory is yours and that we look to you and your cross and the great things you have done and we change our lives we submit to your changes in our lives, that we submit to you changing our lives to be more like you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. I have to confess that I struggled to find the main thrust of this passage. It seems a little bit silly, but when you look at it, it's, it's pretty obvious. I think that sometimes we lose the power of the challenge of this passage because we've probably heard it. You know, those of you who have been Christians for a while, you've probably heard it many, many times. Verse 34 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Nope, I've lost, uh, lost power. Does that work? Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. Trent, can you hear me okay? Okay. You got it? Okay. Sorry. I've got it. Back again? Okay. That's fine. So verse 34 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The answer's right there, isn't it? What are you living for? If, a, if you are a Christian, then Jesus is asking for nothing less than everything. A life devoted to him and his gospel. And that's quite scary, isn't it? But in many regards, it makes sense when we put it into context. Now, I know that many people here have had far more experience looking after children, especially little children, than me. Many years ago, I went to visit my sister in Canada, and my niece, who was just, had just turned three, was going through the tantrum phase. And those of you who know little children know that most of them go through this tantrum phase. We were just getting her ready to go outside and my brother-in-law was putting her coat on. I don't want to wear my coat! <laughs> just something as simple as that. And straight away, the tantrum occurred. My sister said that it was only actually lasted a couple of weeks just how it happened to occur when I was there. But as I said, it's something that's common and that occurs to children of that age, and I got to witness some spectacular tantrums. <laughs> so, but we grow out of tantrums, don't we? Hopefully. When we're young, though, there are these things that seems so incredibly important to us. And we hold on to them. And we don't want to let them go. And it's only later that we look back and we realize that they're silly. That they're not that important. 
I used to be a lower school specialist, which was year 7 and 8, which is 11 to 13 year olds. And occasionally, every you know, couple of times a year, I would get a parent who would be ringing me up and saying that their child couldn't come into school, wouldn't come into school because they were so upset because one of their friends, they'd fallen out with one of their friends. Now, I'm not saying that friendship's not important. What I'm saying is that at that age, the friendship, their best friendship, is the whole world to them. Imagine if you fell out with one of your friends and decided and to ring up your boss and say, I can't come in because I'm so upset. Well, generally, as an adult, we can't do that. Or rather, they wouldn't take that as an excuse. But to an 11 or 12-year-old, that is the most important thing, and their whole world falls apart. The point I'm making is that some of these things that we thought were so important, things that were the whole world to us, we realize are not quite so important. It's not, it's, it can be quite silly now. When we look at those things that we held dear, they're maybe not the most important thing that we should have been holding on to. And when we look at what we hold on to now, what value does it have in the light of eternity? Is it really, really important that we get the big house, the second, third car? that we have so much money in the bank that we have no worries ever again. In light of eternity, how important is that? Look down at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Because that's what is at stake when we ask, what are you living for? You can become the richest man in the world, but you can't take it with you, with you when you die. That's something that's drilled into children, and yet we forget that as adults. Because money is important, yes. We need to try and be wise about that. But keep spending our lives chasing after money and then what, is our, what, what do we have at the end of our life? The Egyptian pharaohs thought they could take their wealth with them. They built great pyramids. They stored all their wealth with them. But what, where is it now? It's plundered or lies in museums. You can become the most famous person in the world. But what does that count in eternity? What does it count if you're not spending eternity with God the Creator, the source of all light and goodness, and how does it benefit you when you get to heaven and proclaim, I was the most famous person in the world? The good news is that Jesus even though Jesus does demand everything from us, our life, our commitment, he does take it, us through it step by step.
step, step by baby step, because that's what we need. Because we can behave, yes, I can behave like a big baby sometimes. Let's have a look at the passage again. In verse 22 to 26, Jesus heals a blind man. Now, this is the only instance that in, in the four Gospels that Jesus doesn't heal the, bl- the man immediately. We know that he has the power to do so. He raises people from the dead instantly, calms the storm instantly, casts out demons with just a word. There is no fight. There is no long religious ceremony or ritual. There is no chanting or special preparation that Jesus has to do. Just a word, and he raises the dead, calms the storm, casts out demons. He has that much power. So what's going on here? Well, it's hard to see without the context of the next uh, passage. We see that Peter and the disciples are on a path. You see, Peter and the disciples, when Jesus first calls them, they answer. But they're still very much blind, aren't they? And step by step, they start to see. We see that first step here, don't we? In verse 27 to 30, we see Peter has the most wonderful of revelations, most wonderful of responses. Jesus asks, but who do you say I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ. Peter's got it, hasn't he? He's got it. You are the Christ. But we see in the very next couple of verses, three verses later, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So he hasn't quite got it, has he? He doesn't realise the consequences of what being the Christ means. And whilst Peter can be really, really dumb sometimes, really stupid, and that's really encouraging for us, because we can be equally dumb sometimes. I don't think we can really blame Peter here. You see, the Saviour of Israel has come. The Saviour of the world has come. The Messiah, the Christ, the Promised One, the one that has been prophesied through all of history, through all of the Old Testament, and he's been waiting for this through all his life, and Israel have been waiting for this, for Jesus, for this Christ. And now he's talking about suffering and dying, of being taken by the religious leaders and being killed. What is Jesus going on about? You are the chosen one. You are the great king. You are the great prophet. You're the one of the line of David. No, Peter didn't understand that Jesus had to die. He didn't understand why Jesus had to die. Because Jesus was looking at a kingdom that was beyond the earthly kingdom. He was looking at a problem that was beyond our earthly problems. He wasn't talking about wealth or comfort or sickness or disease or the economic disasters or even natural disasters. 
He was looking at our spiritual life. He died to save us. Because there was no way we could save ourselves. Not spiritually. Not in terms of our relationship with God and not in terms of eternity. And like Peter, we don't understand that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And we owe everything to Jesus. No, there is nothing. So we don't understand that. And as a Christian for over 30, about 30 years now, I don't understand that. I'm still learning to try and understand that. That there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. That we owe everything to Jesus. And therefore he has brought our, bought our lives with his sacrifice. We're still learning. We're still growing. We're still getting that understanding. When we become Christians, we gain just enough understanding that we, uh, to, to say that we need a saviour. We need a saviour because we are unable to have a relationship with the perfect God. We are so imperfect, so fallen, so selfish, so unworthy that we cannot be in his presence. But by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, we're washed clean and we're able to be in his presence. We're declared holy and the relationship between us and the creator God is restored but as we grow as Christians we continue to make mistakes we keep living for ourselves we keep living our selfish lives and slowly little by little Jesus shows us just how deep our sin is just how selfish we are and we learn that we continue to need Jesus to change us the spirit in us working in us to change us, to make us more like him. And this is the core of the Christian message. And when Christ, non-Christians say that Christians are arrogant, judgment, judgmental and holier than thou, it makes my heart wrench. Because at its core, Christianity without humility just does not work. It doesn't exist. Christianity cannot work without humility. We cannot look at the cross and acknowledge our sin and that Jesus died for us without understanding that we need him. That it's nothing that we've done and we are just living our selfish little lives for ourselves but we need help. So any arrogance or judgmentalness or holier-than-thou attitude just doesn't work with the Christian mindset. In Christianity, there is no place for pride. The pride is the big killer. And over and over again in my life, God has continued to work to knock me down. Painfully, I know, for my good, for my pride. And I of all people know pride. 
talked about that before, I'll talk about it again, I'm sure. There are plenty of places in my life I know pride still exists. And there's no place for selfishness. And I know in my life that still exists. Jesus demands it all. But thankfully we have a gracious, loving, and very, very patient God who shows it to us little by little and helps us to grow an understanding of this and helps us to give, up, uh, give them up through gentleness and love. Through gentleness and love, he teaches us to be less selfish, to be less proud. And like the child who is throwing a tantrum because they don't want to give up their toys and like a in, a, in a, a little while, some of you will go and pick up your children, and maybe this will happen. It's time to go home. It's time to have lunch. It's time to have dinner. But I'm playing with my toy! I don't want to give up. I'm playing with my friends! I, want, I don't want to go! The parent who lovingly explains what they're doing with this, why they're doing this, it's time to go home, it's time for lunch. For the tenth time, you're lovingly explaining, sorry, you've got to leave your friends. We have to go home. That's what God's doing with us. And it's humbling. The parent who patiently bears with the tantrums and the tears. The parent who gently pries the toy from the child's hands. That's God doing that with us. We want to hold on to these things so tightly and God gently explains it to us. He gently pries things from our hands and He gently and patiently bears with us. It is incredibly humbling to realize that we are a child before God and that we are that self-centered and selfish and immature. It was Jim Elliot um, who was the Christian martyr who died bringing the gospel to the natives of Ecuador who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He said that before going, knowing full well that he was risking his life, his everything, and he did. He gave up his life. He gave what he could not keep because our, our life is not our own to that which he could not lose. He could not lose that promise, that certain hope of eternity, that knowledge that God has adopted us into his family. You see, this is where the fallacy of a prosperity gospel is just so ridiculous. Because as a Christian, The prosperity gospel, if you don't know or understand what it is, it's saying, become a Christian and God will bless you with wealth, health and happiness. As if these things in this world were things to be grasped and gained, and as if any of those things will benefit us 
in eternity and in the next world. Wealth, health and happiness. Because those things, are they ultimately the best things for us? Where will we be when we are on our deathbed? And oh, okay, okay, we're a Christian. We've got wealth, health and happiness. No, those things... Those things are not ours. Those things we can lose. Yet God will bless us. And if we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, who had none of those, who certainly had no wealth and suffered pain and sorrow, we should certainly expect nothing better. Sometimes he does give us those things. Wealth, health and happiness. But Jesus who had none of those things, who we follow in his footsteps and long to be more like him, we should not be expecting any better. And be thankful and praise God when he does give us those blessings. So finally, what does he ask of us? He asks us to bear witness to him. In verse 38, look down at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I've heard non-Christians ask and sometimes mock, you have a God who created you to worship him. Isn't that arrogant and self-centered of God? He's made you to worship him. Doesn't that seem incredibly kind of selfish of him? Arrogant of him? You create things that adore you and praise you and worship you. But I want you to look back at the picture we saw earlier. Have you ever heard a child talk about their parents? A little child. Not when they become a cynical teenager. That's when I have to deal with them. Okay. There is something that is the most natural thing in the world about a child boasting about their parent. A little child. To that little child, the parent is their whole world. And they will go to their friends and they will boast about their parents. My dad can beat up your dad. My mum is better than your mum. I love my mum more than you love yours. And have you ever heard a little child talk to their parent? Yes, of course you have. Surely there would be something wrong if you didn't hear the child automatically say, automatically say I love you, mummy. There is something wonderful about that natural occurrence of I love you, daddy, or I love you, mummy. And again, that child, to that child, their parents are the whole world to it, to them. I think that it's the most natural thing in the world that we love and worship our Creator God, who is also our Heavenly Father and the most perfectly loving Father. 
the Father who wants to give us all things, but will patiently watch as we suffer to to grow. Because sometimes children make mistakes and sometimes they need to. And they need to go through that suffering. And God patiently watches and holds us while we do that. And if we deny Him, then there is something wrong with our relationship with Him. If we have confessed with our mouth and believed in our heart that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, because that is what a Christian is. Confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, then there is something wrong if we are embarrassed about Him. That we are ashamed of Him. So what does this mean for us? Should we go and sell everything and become a missionary? That is a great calling. And if God is calling you to do that, you will be greatly blessed. But He doesn't call everyone to do that. God is calling you to do what, probably what you are already doing. God does need teachers and accountants. He needs cleaners and nannies. He needs housewives. And he even needs lawyers. He needs people who enjoy golf and ultimate frisbee. He needs people who enjoy knitting and reading and going to the cinema. And all the wonderful things that you do. The Great Commission... In the Great Commission, God calls his disciples, whose mission is then passed on to each of us, to make disciples of all nations. That all nations, as I've said in the past, all nations doesn't just mean all nationalities. It means all people groups. That means that in our groups, the mother's group, the teacher's staff room, the workers that you go work with, the people that you play golf with, God is asking you to witness to Him there. For me, I know that God has asked me, called me to work in private schools. Now, you might think that's fortunate. You get to work in a secure job that is relatively well paid and you get nice holidays. But I know that God has asked me to work there. And generally to those people I ask, I say, come and work with teenagers. Why didn't you come and work with teenagers? And they say, no, thank you. <laughs> but I know I've been blessed with the calling that God has given me. But also in those schools, I know that the children and the adults I witness to, it's hard ground. They're very, very resistant to the gospel. They're very dismissive and even antagonistic towards the gospel. But wherever you are, God has asked you to do his work, to witness for him. And if people reject him, well, that's still God's work. And if it's hard ground, it's still God's work. Because that's all God asks you to do, is to witness to him. Where the opportunity arises, talk about him. You see, if we've been saved, God has given this, us this wonderful gift 
of a place in his family and in eternity. Why wouldn't we tell others about that? Why wouldn't we want to share that with others? This is what I mean by we don't understand this. If we do understand this, then surely we should be out there begging others to come and join us in this family, in eternity. And if God allowed his son to die in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice, he reached down into the miry depths of where we were, into the sinful life that we were living. He grabbed us by the scruff of our neck and he pulled us out. We weren't even looking for him, and he came to us. How will we be judged if then we show that we are ashamed of him? I know that for some people in the world, it can be positively dangerous to admit that you belong to Christ, even some people in this church. That we are Christians... And those, I mean, those people must continue to seek out the wisdom of God. But for many of us, we hide the, the fact that we are Christians just because it's an inconvenience. We might be ashamed. We might be seen as fundamental or too religious or that kind of person. We don't really associate with that kind of person. or We don't want to talk to that kind of person. We don't want to be seen as the outside person. It's just a little bit too easy to hide away or just not to say anything, isn't it? To blend in. But God is asking that you don't. That you witness to him, that you shine for his glory and perhaps bring others to him. That is all he's asking. And in the context of what he has done for us, surely that is something very small. Let me pray. Father, forgive us when we are embarrassed, when we are ashamed of you. Forgive us for our selfishness, our self-centeredness, when we only look at the things of this world. Lord, we pray that you continue to love, be patient and be gentle with us, but show us how we can change to love you more, to love you so much that it bubbles out and we can't help but talk about you, that we are lights shining in this world, reflecting your glory. Lord, we pr pray that you blind those, the, the, those who don't know you to all our failings that, that they only see your light in us and that they ask the question why Lord we pray that you make it so clear to us when we have the opportunity to share your word because we're useless at finding those opportunities Lord give us boldness and courage and strength, but also kindness, love, and gentleness, as you have 
with us. Lord, we thank you for making us your children, giving us a promise of eternity. And help us to understand that more and more each day and live according to that. In Jesus' name, Amen.